We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the book of James, James chapter 1, and if you weren't here that last Sunday, uh, I announced uh, that uh, we, Lord willing, will be launching into the book of Romans uh, after Labor Day and uh, after some time of prayer and conversation with folks in the church, and it just seemed like that was the, the place that the Lord was directing my heart and uh, a lot of other people's hearts as well. Um, and so looking forward to diving into that epic uh, epistle uh, that Paul wrote. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I wanted to go back to uh, the first book that I ever exposited as a, as, a, as a senior pastor, the book of James. It's always a bit nostalgic when I uh, look through uh, this book and it just brings back so many memories um, in the early years of ministry here in Texas and here at Lakeside and um, probably the one passage that sticks out in my mind more than any other is these opening verses of of James chapter one. And uh, this is just one of those uh, jugular texts as one of my seminary professors called them, you know, it's just, uh, you just gotta, you gotta know it. You gotta get it. You gotta apply it because uh, it's just so critical for life uh, here on planet earth. And so uh, let's reread the section that we began last week, James chapter 1, starting in verse 2 and reading through verse 12. James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Father, we thank you for preserving this this critical passage for us uh, in your word. Uh, There's so much here for us uh, to understand, to apply, and so we need your help today. Thank you for giving us your spirit, uh, the same spirit that inspired these words uh, through the pen of James is the same spirit who is working in our midst even now uh, in our lives to illuminate us, to help us understand Uh, what uh, James meant by what he wrote and how it applies to our specific uh, situation that we find ourselves in even this day. And so we pray that we would see a demonstration of your Spirit's power this morning uh, as uh, he reveals uh, his word to us and applies it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the biggest uh, blessings of having pastored in the same church for close to 20 years now is uh, being able to watch 
God grant people grace uh, in dealing with all sorts of curveballs, those, those unexpected events in life, those situations, those trials that, that no one could have ever seen coming, whether it's been a miscarriage or a special needs child or marital unfaithfulness or divorce or a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter, uh, an estranged family member, chronic pain, terminal illness, brain tumors, amputations, bankruptcies, probations, incarcerations, military death notifications. You know, when they come to your door and that, that knock on the door that no parent with a, a son in the military ever wants to receive those kind of notifications, the being suddenly and prematurely widowed. These are just a few of the scenarios that I've had the privilege of walking alongside families as they've gone through these, these, these life challenges, these severe trials. And Jerry Bridges has said it so well in his book, Trusting God. He said this, quote, adversity and its accompanying emotional pain comes in many forms. Those whose lives are free from major pain still experience the frequently frustrating or anxiety-producing events of daily life, which momentarily grab our attention and rob us of our peace of mind. It's interesting. Sometimes, if we are to be honest, we respond better to major trials than we do the little frustrations and inconveniences of life, don't we? Why is that? It's interesting that, that those little things can throw us off into a tizzy, right? Where those big ones come and the Lord just gives us that peace that passes all understanding. Bridges points this out. He says that long-planned vacation has to be canceled because of illness. The washing machine breaks down the day company arrives. Your class notes are lost or stolen the day before a major exam. You tear your favorite dress on the way to church and on and on. It is true that such mundane events are only temporary and pale in significance alongside truly tragic events of life. Yet for most of us, life is filled with such little events, little frustrations, little anxieties, and little disappointments that tempt us to fret, fume, and worry. He said it is in the crucible of even this minor level of adversity that we're tempted to wonder, can I trust God? Can I trust God? And I think a, a person uh, and how they answer that question is one of the quickest and easiest ways to know whether or not their faith in Christ is genuine. Because a trial is simply a test of our faith. It's a test to see if we really believe everything that we say we believe. And if we trust God, we prove our commitment and dependence on him is real. If we doubt him, however, we prove that all we have is a bunch of head knowledge about who he is, and it really makes no difference in the practical situations of our lives. And I think that's essentially the point of the first 12 verses of the book of James. James was writing to people who claimed to have faith in God, but their behavior was inconsistent with their beliefs. And so he challenged them throughout this letter to, to test themselves to see whether or not their faith was genuine or was it counterfeit. And so he described the characteristics of 
of, of true faith or the fruit of true faith. That's the point of the book of James. And for starters, he described how a true believer responds when they encounter trials in their life. That's the first fruit you should look for to see if you're truly saved is how you respond to trials. And so here in verses 2 through 12, James explains six ways that Christians should respond when life throws us a curve. And so we looked last week at the first three ways uh, that we're to respond. When that curve comes our way, uh, we should have, number one, a joyful attitude. Verse two, consider it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, but when you encounter various trials. Secondly, we need to have an understanding mind. Verse three, knowing how can you have joy when you encounter all sorts of trials? It's, it's because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So you need to have an understanding mind. In other words, it's accomplishing a purpose. And then thirdly, you need to have a submissive will, a submissive will. Verse four, and let, there it is, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so you need to submit to the potter's hand, if you will, as he's developing you, as he's conforming you more to the image of Christ, making you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, this morning, I want to look at the last three ways that we should respond when life throws us a curve. And so along with a joyful attitude and an understanding mind and a submissive will, we must also have a believing heart, a believing heart, and that's verses five through eight. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so we need to have a believing heart. You know this to be true when you face a trial, you experience a difficult situation in life, most of the time, you don't know exactly what to do. You don't know exactly how to respond. We lack the wisdom that we need to handle whatever it is that God has brought into our life. And that's why James encouraged us to ask God for wisdom. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, wisdom, we know, is more than just knowledge. There's knowledge, which is knowing facts, and then there's wisdom, which is the ability to apply that knowledge, those facts, to the practical matters of life. Knowing a, a bunch of information about God and the Bible is useless if you don't know how to use it in dealing with everyday situations and problems that we face, the, the trials of our lives. And that's why James said what he said in verse five. He said in one translation, the Phillips translation, if anyone doesn't know how to meet a particular problem, that's what he's saying. If you don't know what to do, you're faced with a problem, you know what to do, you need to ask God for wisdom. In other words, when you find yourselves entangled in what seems to be a purposeless mess, you don't know what to do, you don't know which way to turn, you need to cry out to God and ask him for wisdom to deal with it. Now, what do we typically cry out for? Lord, get me out of this mess, right? We want, we want out of this mess. What we should cry is, Lord, give me wisdom to sort out this mess. Give me wisdom to sort out this mess. 
We don't have time to turn there, but back in Psalm 107, verses 25 through 30, the Bible compares being in a trial or a troubling situation to being on a ship in the middle of a, of a raging storm. It's a, it's a very vivid analogy. And, and we see back in Psalm 107 that the sailors were, were just kind of, the, 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 the boat was going up and going down with the waves like this. And they were at their wit's end. All their nautical and, and, and wisdom and skill had been used up. Their, their last resort was to cry out to God. That's all they could do. They had done everything they knew how to do. And so the only thing that was left to do was cry out to God. And again, I think that's a brilliant analogy of, of what it's like that we, we oftentimes are battered by a stormy trial and we find ourselves at our wit's end and all that we know is useless at the time and nothing we try seems to work and we're perplexed. We don't know how to cope or how to deal with it. And, and it's in moments like these that we need more than anything, even more than comfort, even more than strength, we need what? Wisdom. And that's why James instructed believers how and where to get the wisdom we need in order to deal with our trials. Notice he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. That is a present active imperative. It's a command, and it's in the present tense. In other words, you need to keep asking God. This is a repeated action here. You need to ask God because he is the source of true wisdom. You can't find wisdom anywhere else. Don't run to other people necessarily, run to God. Proverbs 2, 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In the book of Job, this is an interesting passage. In Job chapter 28, verse 12, Job is asking the question, where is wisdom to be found? Job 28, verse 12, but where can wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. In other words, I look around the world for wisdom and it's not here. Well, then where is it? He goes on to say in verse 23, God understands its way. God knows wisdom. He knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure, when he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out, referring to wisdom. And to man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. And so we need to go to God to find the wisdom that we need. And notice what it says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. Literally, the text says, ask the giving God. God is a, a, a giver by nature at heart. He is, he is um, the giver of all good gifts. Just look down to verse 17 in this same chapter. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So God is a, a giver, and he's just not a giver. He's a generous giver. He gives to all generously, unreservedly, unconditionally, freely, without bargaining. He doesn't look for anything in return. He gives without hesitation. He gives without reservation. He holds nothing back. Why should he? 
He has an unlimited supply of wisdom. He'll never run out, so he can give as much of it away as he wants. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And notice it says, he gives to all generously and without reproach. He doesn't find fault with us when we ask him for wisdom. He doesn't rebuke us or reprimand us for asking. He doesn't scold us. He doesn't insult us. You'll never hear God say things like when you come and I say, Lord, I really need your wisdom in this situation. He goes, oh, here's the knucklehead again. What took you so long, you moron? I've been waiting for you to ask. And I'm not sure I'm going to give you wisdom because last time I gave it to you and you didn't use it. You're never going to get that. He gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him, it says. This is one of the most encouraging promises in the Bible. The fact that, that God promises to give us wisdom whenever we ask should motivate us to ask often for it and ask for a lot of it. If you wonder how God, or what God thinks about those that, that ask for wisdom, you just have to recall the story of Solomon back in 1 Kings chapter 3. And God essentially said, hey, ask for whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he didn't ask for riches, he didn't ask for fame, he didn't ask for any of those things. What he asked for was what? Wisdom. And God was so grateful that that was his request, that he blessed him so abundantly that Solomon became the what? Wisest man who ever lived. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Is it God's will that you ask him for wisdom in the midst of a trial? Absolutely. He tells us to, we're commanded to, it's his will. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know we have the requests which we have asked from him. And so what a great promise that if we lack wisdom, all we need to do is pray and ask the Lord to grant it to us, and he will. And not just a little bit, not just enough. He'll, 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 he'll bless us with tons of wisdom. However, if we expect to receive this generous dose of wisdom to deal with our trials, we need to trust God completely. Notice what he goes on to say, but, verse six, but, James qualified this promise that he had just made in verse five. In other words, God will answer our prayers, your prayers for wisdom on one condition or with one exception. You must ask in faith without doubting. You must ask in faith. You must ask with total trust in God and his sovereignty, his goodness, his power, his wisdom, his love. We need to have a, a wholehearted dependence on an unwavering commitment to God is the point. We can't doubt that he knows what he's doing or that, that his ways are best or that he, that he keeps his promises or that he'll hear our prayers or give us what we ask for. We can't doubt those things. Doubting is the opposite of faith means to, to divide, to be at odds with, with oneself, to, to waver back and forth, to wrestle with unbelief. And I think when we find ourselves in the midst of a trial, it makes no sense to us. That's the issue. We, we battle with unbelief. We struggle to believe that God is 
truly in control. We, we battle uh, to believe that he's good. We battle to believe that he truly loves us and cares for us. We, we battle to believe that he knows what he's doing. We battle to believe that he's working everything out for our good. And in verse seven, James says, the doubting person who's not sure that God will answer or not, sure, even if he wants to hear God's answer, shouldn't have the audacity to expect God to answer him. Notice he says, for that man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. In fact, he, he describes this doubting person, notice verse six, as a surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, the surf is at the mercy of the wind. This is a, a vivid picture of just the restless agitation of one who's at the mercy of a trial. They're up one minute and they're down the next. They're, they're, they're encouraged one minute, they're discouraged the next. They're just waffling and wavering. And why? Because they're double-minded. Verse eight, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Literally, they're two-souled. They're divided between two things. There's a war, a war raging in their minds between relying on God's wisdom and their own wisdom, between doing what God wants them to do and doing what they want to do. There's this battle in their heart. The Puritan John Bunyan in his classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, described this person by giving him the name Mr. Facing Both Ways. Mr. Facing Both Ways. You don't want to be Mr. Facing Both Ways or Mrs. Facing Both Ways, for that matter. Why? Because you'll be unstable, unsettled, restless in all your ways. And the fact that you're vacillating back and forth in your spiritual life affects every other area of your life. Your personal life, you'll be back and forth. And your relational life, you'll be back and forth. Emotionally, financially, you're all over the place. And by the way, God detests double-mindedness. He detests double-mindedness. Remember what he told Joshua, or Joshua told, said, God spoke through Joshua to the people of Israel Joshua 24, verse 15, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They were vacillating between whether they should follow the gods of Egypt that they had brought with them out of, out of slavery or were they going to truly choose God. And God used Joshua to draw a line in the sand and say, hey, figure it out. You got to make a decision. You got to get rid of those gods and follow me. How about uh, Elijah. Uh, in 1 Kings 18, when he was uh, having that standoff with the, the 400 prophets of Baal, he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. In other words, get off the fence. I'd rather have you believe in Baal than try to two-time me, is what God's saying. One or the other, take your pick. You say, well, how do I get out of that double-mindedness? Because I tend to be that way sometimes. Look at James chapter 4, verse 8. James chapter 4, verse 8, he gives us uh, the solution there. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
And so there needs to be a confession that double-mindedness is sin. It's displeasing to the Lord. And you, you ask him to cleanse you and to purify your heart and give you an undivided heart and draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say it well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not half of your heart, part of your heart, some of your heart. Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, not just some of your ways, not just part of your ways, all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And then he goes on and says, do not be wise in your own eyes. In other words, don't seek wisdom in yourself, but seek it in the Lord. So when life throws a curve, we need to respond with a believing heart, a believing heart, and not be double-minded. The fifth way we need to respond when uh, life throws us a curve is not only do we have a believing heart, we need to have a humble spirit, a humble spirit, and that's verses 9 through 11. But the brother of humble circumstances to glory in his high position and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and his flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now at first glance, you might be thinking, what does that have to do with trials? Seems like James is changing the subject here in verses nine through 11 and and, and some Bible students uh, have concluded that he's introducing a, a new subject here that's unrelated to trials. But then you come back to verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under what? Under trial. And so verse 12 clearly serves as a summary to the first 11 verses. And so to me, it's obvious that, that James still had trials on his mind when he was writing verses 9, 10, and 11. So these three verses must be interpreted in the context of his discussion about trials. In other words, they have something to do with trials. And so what do they have to do with trials? Well, he addresses two types of people in these three verses. We could call them the poor rich and the rich poor. The poor rich and the rich poor. Look, look first of all at the poor rich. He says, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. Now again, James was writing to, to Jewish Christians who had been driven from their homes in Jerusalem by religious persecution. Most of them probably lost everything when they fled. And so they were now trying to survive on, on meager material resources. And what's more, they had to put up with being looked down upon because of their low financial position. And from a material standpoint, they had nothing to be proud of. They didn't have had reason, they had no reason to rejoice. They were probably depressed, even embarrassed maybe, that they, they, they most likely resented their impoverished condition. And yet James said something unbelievable to these poverty-stricken Christians. He said, those of you who are in humble circumstances, you're to glory in your high position, you're to boast in, you're to rejoice, you're to profess loudly something you're proud of. He says, so glory in your high position. And obviously James was referring to their, their spiritual status. 
that they enjoyed by virtue of their relationship with, with Christ. This is, he's talking about their position in Christ. He didn't want these Christians to be discontent or resent the persecution and poverty they were experiencing because, because of their commitment to Christ. And so he commanded them to rejoice in the fact that, that, that they were children of God and reminded them what a privilege it was to suffer for Christ's sake. Look at chapter two, verse five. In the midst of being shown partiality, to the wealthy, this is what James says in chapter two, verse five. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So when a poor Christian forgets his poverty and focuses on his inheritance in Christ, he rejoices in the realization that, you know what? I'm a rich man. I'm a rich woman. They're a rich, poor man. They may be poor materially, but they're rich spiritually. And conversely, when a, a rich Christian forgets his riches and focuses on his inheritance in Christ, he rejoices in the realization that compared to his heavenly riches, he's really poor. He's the, the poor rich man. And so James, as we're about to see, commanded the rich person to do the same thing he commanded the poor person to do, to glory, to boast, and to rejoice in their spiritual position rather than their financial situation. Notice he says in verse 10, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. The rich person was someone who had abundance of, uh, an abundance of possessions, uh, they maybe didn't even have to work for a living. They were wealthy and they were to boast in and, and rejoice in their humiliation, their lowliness. In other words, when they considered their heavenly riches, they're, they're humbled. They, they recognize all that they have doesn't even begin to compare with what they have in Christ. And see, when... When it comes to trials, so much is often related to what we have or don't have, right? I mean, look at Job. Everything he had, he was a wealthy man. Everything he had, he lost. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That, that's the common denominator. Whether you're rich, you're poor, blessed be the name of the Lord. I think that's the spirit of, of, of these verses here. And, and, and so James, I think, was just getting at the fact that it's natural for rich people to be proud of things like their house or their car or their clothes or the balance in their checking account or the size of their portfolio. And, and yet when a rich person comes to know Christ in all of his glory, he's not going to be proud of his money and possessions anymore. That's not going to be the focus of his life. He'll be proud that he has the glorious privilege of being a Christian and that his relationship with Christ is eternal. But all these other things that used to be their life is, is just temporary. It's like what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 9. Let, if you're going to boast about something, right? Don't boast in your riches. Don't boast in your wisdom. Boast in the fact that you know God. That's what you should boast in. Notice how James borrowed a, a classic illustration from the Old Testament here to remind 
the rich person of the, of the transitory nature of life. He says, because like, a flowering, because like flowering grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. A rich person is like a flower in, in full bloom, and, and their outward appearance is, 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 is magnificent, and it catches everybody's eye. And when people see their house and their car and their clothes and their stuff and they say, oh, wow, isn't that beautiful? Wow, that's amazing. But James is reminding us here that the rich man's life is no more permanent than, the, than a wildflower in Palestine that, that pops up in the spring when it rains. And then as soon as the dry, hot winds of, of, the, of the summer sweep in from the Syrian desert, it just wilts away. In the same way, the rich person will quickly fade even as he's going about his business. Look at James chapter four, verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Here's a, here's a mover and shaker. He's making some money and he's saying, I'm making my plans and I'm gonna go here and I'm gonna do this and get this done and sell this and you know, build this account. And verse 14, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord, what? Wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you, what? Boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And so James reminded his readers of the sobering reality that life is uncertain and why? He wanted to motivate us to live with a humble spirit of dependence upon God, if the Lord wills. That is a, that is a humble spirit. In other words, I'm not the, the master of my destiny. I'm not in control of my life and my career and my marriage or my family, if the Lord wills. I think ultimately what James was saying back there in chapter one is that when Christ becomes everything to us, it doesn't matter what happens to us. If Christ is everything to us, it doesn't matter what happens to us. If we're poor, it doesn't matter if we gain everything. And if we're rich, it doesn't matter if we lose everything. It doesn't make any difference. If you live in a condo or a castle, whether you drive a Prius or a Porsche. No offense to the Prius drivers, right? That's an ecological decision, good for you, right? Whether you shop at TJ Maxx or Tiffany's, right? Doesn't matter. Why? Because the genuine Christian, the true Christian views all of life from a humble perspective. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor as long as you have Jesus, that's all that matters. And sometimes it takes a trial to, to strip us of our wealth or our, our health or, or take away a loved one to remind us what really matters in life. And we discover that we can rejoice no matter what's going on in the fact that God has saved us and he's given us eternal riches that can never be taken away, that will never pass away. And so when life throws you a curve, you need to respond with this kind of humble spirit. 
just, just having the right perspective about what really matters in life. And then finally here, we come to verse 12, which is the climax, the culmination, the, the conclusion to James's instruction on trials here. And here we have the, the sixth way of responding to life's curves, and that is a persevering hope, a persevering hope. He says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So I think this is um, really just a summary of everything that he said so far. And what he's doing is he's explaining the result or the reward of obeying what he's been commanding us or instructing us to do in verses 2 through 11. Those who persevere through the trials of life will receive the reward of eternal life. And I'll explain that in just a moment. But at times, it's this, it's this heavenly hope that we have alone that keeps us going when, 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 when we feel like giving up, throwing in the towel, calling it quits. We're sustained through difficult times by the hope of future relief and future reward. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory for far beyond all comparison. So sometimes our affliction does not feel momentary, does it? It feels like forever. We've been in this forever. Or it feels so heavy. It doesn't feel light. It feels heavy. I don't know if I can bear up under it. He says, hey, you know what? At the end of the day, it's momentary. It's light compared to the eternal weight of glory that we will receive when we get to heaven. And so he says, blessed, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, happy. In other words, you're not moping around, oh, I'm in a trial again, oh, woe is me. No, you're happy. You're joyful. You, you, you have this joy that's flooding your soul because you're not giving up when you're confronted with difficult circumstances, but you're persevering through them. That word says, blessed is the man who perseveres, says that word, hupameno, again, to remain under, to be under a heavy weight and refuse to give up or, 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 or to give in. You tough it out, you stick it out, you don't wimp out, you brave, bravely and tenaciously endure. And again, Job is a classic example for 42 chapters not only was he enduring the trials that God ordained for his life through Satan, but he had to endure his so-called friends who were blaming him for all of his problems. Notice James chapter five, verse 11. Love this verse. We count those blessed who endured. He tells us in chapter one, verse 12, blessed is the man who endures or perseveres under trial. And again, he says, now we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. 
unless we think that was simply that God restored to him all that he had had and then some, because that is how the story of Job ends, I think more importantly is Job said, you know, I've heard of you, I've heard about you, but now I really know you. That was the ultimate act of grace and mercy and compassion is that the Lord revealed himself to Job in a very new and precious way. And he would never have gotten that close to God had he not gone through all that he went through. Notice that back in James 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he's been approved, there's our word dakamazo, to try, to test, to prove. We've talked about this already. This is the idea of testing or proving whether or not something is genuine. It was used of ancient coins and, and uh, metals, pottery. They would pass through a furnace to, to refine them, to purify them, to remove the dross, and they would be stamped, dakamazo, tested and approved. You can, you can trust this, this coin, this piece of pottery. It's the real thing. And so he says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved or once he has passed the test. In other words, you've come through the refiner's fire with your faith intact, proving that your faith was indeed real. You'll receive the crown of life, he says. The Stephanon, which was the, the head wreath that was given out as a prize uh, to the victorious athlete in the ancient games, the Greek games. James was saying in the same way, God promises to reward us with a crown if we are a victorious Christian who triumphs through the trials of life. Notice he says, it's the crown of life. We receive the crown of Life. This is what's called a genitive of opposition, which you could, or apposition, which you could care less about in the Greek. But it helps us understand that literally what it's saying here, what James was saying, is that the crown, which is life, he will receive the crown of life, not just the crown of life, but the crown which is life. And this is not referring to a literal crown. We're going to get to heaven and he's going to pop a crown in our heads and say, way to go, good job. No, the crown is eternal life. This is, this is what we all get. This is a reward. And uh, it's not just a special award reserved for a few faithful believers. It's, it's the common reward that all true believers will receive. It's the, the reward for perseverance. And the reward for perseverance is what? Eternal life in heaven. Now, let me provide a little disclaimer here because I, would, I don't want anyone thinking that what James was saying here is that, that eternal life is something that we earn by our perseverance. Eternal life is received by a person who by persevering through the trials of life has proven that he's truly saved. In other words, James wasn't saying a person is saved by enduring trials. But by enduring trials, a person proves that they're saved and thereby will be blessed with eternal life. Perseverance is the result of 
or evidence of true faith. And in Protestant Reformed theology, that's referred to as the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. Simply put, a true Christian will persevere to the end. Will persevere to the end. Or uh, stated another way, if you're truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Once saved, what? Always saved. So it's true that our salvation depends on our perseverance in the sense that that's the evidence that we're truly saved, but it's also true, and more importantly, that our perseverance depends on God's preservation. And the reason why you persevere as a Christian is because God is preserving you. Philippians 1, 6, we learned that from our study in Philippians. He who began a good work in you will what? Carry it to completion. He started it and he will finish it. Notice he says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life in which the Lord, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Literally, the loving him ones. This is a, a participle here. The, the, the idea here is that they, the ones that keep on loving him, those who love him and never stop. In other words, their, their life is characterized by love for God. And this is a reality that we need to come to grips with, that a, that a true Christian is not someone who just makes some profession of faith at one point in his past, which seems to be what a lot of people put their marker on, is I'm a Christian because I prayed this prayer, or I walked this aisle, or I had this experience. The question is, are you demonstrating the reality of that profession in the here and now, by living a life of ongoing love for the Lord that's unaffected, unhindered, undaunted by the trials and difficulties that you face, no matter how severe, how no, no matter how long they are. See, those who love Christ with this kind of enduring love can hope to receive the, the unimaginable, uh, unfathomable reward from God that is heaven. 1 Corinthians 2.9, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. I think the most basic question you can ask yourself to determine whether or not you're truly saved is do you love Jesus? I mean, honestly, do you love Christ? Or maybe to add to that, do you love Christ and do you hate sin? I didn't say that you never sin. Because even as that song sang that we're not perfect and there's times we fail, right? But the general attitude of our lives is that we, we hate sin. Why? Because we love Christ. And I think those are just two basic questions to ask yourself. Do, do I truly, genuinely hate sin, and do I truly, genuinely love Christ? Those are two basic fruits of what it means to be a true Christian. 
And so ultimately, it's our love for Christ, that enduring love that keeps us going on. And you could insert there any, any number of love stories, right? Books, movies we've seen that it's, the, it's that love, right, that that, that 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 person has for that other person that just keeps them driving on and going forward and, until they get to see them, right? They, they cross the, the ocean, they climb the mountain, they're willing to, right, swim across the river, whatever, they're, they're, they're willing to do anything. Why? Because they love that person so much that they'll continue to persevere. And that's the idea that we love Christ so much we continue to persevere. We long for that day when we'll see him face to face. And so when life throws us a curve, no matter how bad it may seem, no matter how hard it comes at us, we need to respond with persevering hope, with persevering hope. I'm curious, how many of you have read or at least heard of the, the book Heinz Feet on High Places. Go ahead and raise your hand. I'm curious to see how many of you have, have heard of that or seen that book. Um, it's a, a beautiful allegory of the Christian life written by a, a, a devotional writer named Hannah Hernard back in the 20th century. And uh, it makes me feel old that I am speaking of like past tense. It feels like I just read that thing a few years ago. But um, it, it really is... Uh, in many ways, like Pilgrim's Progress, um, just describing the process that every Christian has to go through to achieve new heights of growth and maturity in Christ. And if you've not read it, I would encourage you to get it. And it's a quick little read. It's just kind of a, uh, a simple little book, but it's a beautiful story about uh, this young girl named Much Afraid and all that she has to endure on her journey to the high places where she longs to be with her beloved shepherd. And in the beginning of the story, she lives in the the valley of humiliation and she's tormented by all kinds of fears. And one day she she finally meets the shepherd and she pleads with him to take her to the high places with him. And, And so he promises to lead her there, but she would have to trust him along the way. And so he provided her with uh, two companions to guide her on her journey. Their names are sorrow and suffering. Here are your two companions to get to the high places, sorrow and suffering. And so they set out on the journey. And yet instead of traveling to the high places, they, 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 their, their path forces her to go through all these difficult places and experience all these dangerous situations. And so she takes a detour through the desert and walks along the shores of loneliness and climbs the great precipice of injury and passes through the forest, forest of danger and tribulation. And she wanders through the bewildering mist and enters the valley of loss. And she's uh, inundated by all sorts of floods. And it was at this point that much afraid began to lose hope and She feels like giving up. And while they're seeking shelter from this horrendous storm, the floods are rising and she's in this little small cave and she's sitting there and she takes out this pouch filled with these memorial stones that she's kind of collected along the way and she empties them them all in her lap. And, and, And she looks at this little heap of stones and she says to herself, you know, I might as well just throw these things away. 
These are all just worthless, worthless promises which the shepherd gave me along the way. They mean nothing to me right now. And those stones obviously represent the, the promises of Scripture that God would never leave us or forsake us, that he would make our feet like hinds feet, that he's a wise potter, that he could be trusted. And so she says to herself eventually, well, though everything in the world should tell me they're worthless, I cannot part with them. And so she puts them back in the bag and she puts them back in her bosom. And she continues on in her journey and perseveres through all sorts of other things and eventually she reaches the high places and when she arrives she meets the, the great shepherd and he gives her a new name her name is grace and glory and sorrow and suffering who by that time had become her best friends are given the names joy and peace and then he takes her aside and asks her to give him that bag of memorial stones that she had collected along the way. I bet you she was thinking at that moment, I'm glad I didn't throw those things out. Didn't know there's going to be a test, right? And so she gives him that bag and he tells her to put out her hand. And to her amazement, what falls into her hands are not those, those little pebbles that she had picked up along the way, but a heap of sparkling jewels. And the shepherd takes each one of those stones and arranges them in a crown and then places it on her head. And it was at that moment that she remembers her experience in the cave when she was tempted to discard those precious promises of the shepherd as, as worthless stones. And if she had failed to trust in his promises, she would have never reached the glory of the high places, nor would she would have never received that beautiful crown. I think that story hits home to so many people because so many of us feel like much afraid. Oftentimes in our life, we, 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 we have the sense that we're huddling in a cave while the storms of life rage around us and we're being tempted to, to doubt the promises of God and you might be there this morning, losing hope, feeling like quitting. And I hope you learn a lesson about trials from this story because in the first 12 verses of James, God gave us all these promises that we must never part with. And no matter what we go through in life, we must never lose hope. We must always persevere, trusting in the precious promises of God and his word until that glorious day when we reach heaven and we receive our beautiful crown of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the book of James and how straightforward, how down to earth it is and just hits us where we're at. And Lord, I know there are some in this room this morning who are feeling very much afraid and feeling very tired and lost and feel like just thrown in the towel and quitting because of some 
curveball that you've ordained for their life, some difficult situation that you've called them to endure. And we thank you, God, that you grant us grace to endure, that you never put more on us than we can handle, that you'll always give us grace to endure, that we'll always find your grace sufficient for us and your power will always be perfected in our weakness. And so I pray that we would learn to trust your promises, to never let them out of our sight, never lose grip on the truths that you've told us in your word. May we cling to those and ultimately trust you to preserve us until that glorious day when we reach heaven and we see you face to face. And so Lord, may we be a blessing and an encouragement to one another as we endure the trials that you've called us to endure. And may we be a witness to the watching world as well, that they would see in us a peace that passes all understanding, that would catch their attention and they would be baffled at how we could be so much at peace and rest, how we could have a, a joy in our lives despite the pain, the loss, the frustrations, the irritations, the inconveniences, Lord, the injustices. And they would, they would want to know how that's possible and that we would have the joy of sharing with them Jesus, that he's the reason why we can be okay when the curveballs come and keep on coming because we have Christ in our life. And so I pray you'd use uh, some of our trials even evangelistically so that we could impact others for Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.